Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Regular listeners will know that we have often spoken to Lucia Rubinelli about Italian politics. Lucia is currently locked down in Northern Italy and we're going to be speaking to her again today. This is also about Italian politics, but it's about so much more than that. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China, from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. Lucia, hi. Do you, do you want to start just by telling us where you are, literally where you are? Yes. So I'm in a room in a flat in a little village called Pozza di Fassa in the Italian Dolomites. So I'm in the mountains. And the reason why I'm here is because uh, my family is from Verona and they live in Verona, but they don't have a flat available for us, as it happens. So we could only come to the mountains. Uh, and here we are in isolation. But it's pretty nice. There's a great view from the window. And ha- so how far are you from Verona? It's a two hours drive. The reason why we came here is because if anything happens to our families, we can drive home. So how long have you been in the flat? Literally in the flat. How long have you been locked down? Today is day 11. Um, Yeah. I mean, we, we go out every now and then with this little piece of paper called, I guess the equivalent in English would be self declaration. It's basically a form you download from the website of the Home Office in which you declare where you're going and why you're going where you're going. And if the police stops you, you have to hand it in and hope. Well, and they will check whether your justification is right or wrong. And if it's not, then you risk a big fine or even jail in some cases. And how stringently is it being policed? So you're not in a big city, you're not even in a town, you're in a village in the countryside. How visible is the policing? Very visible. Uh, So we have already been stopped twice. Once because we were going on a walk in the forest. And while walking out of the forest to get into the flat, they stopped us. And they didn't fine us because I guess they were being nice. But they definitely said that we shouldn't go for walks anymore. And, um, And apart from that, there's a police car driving around the village all day long with loudspeakers telling the community not to get out of the house unless there's a real need, which basically means food or going to the pharmacy. So we're recording this on Sunday morning. This is changing day by day. Last night, Giuseppe Conte, the Italian Prime Minister, Mm -hmm. made a statement on national television. Did you watch it? Yes. Just tell us about it. Um, Well... Sadly, it has become sort of a genre by now. We know how it plays out. It's him in his room with big flags, a European flag and an Italian flag behind him. 
telling us that we need to do more sacrifices. And this time the sacrifice is that they're going to shut down all productive activities, which means that the only people who are allowed to work are either people who can do smart working, so work from home, or people who are working in the, as they called it, indispensable sector, which basically means people working with food, energy, and drugs. So all factories that are producing, I don't know, clothes or anything else uh, have to shut down because too many people are still traveling on a daily basis to go to work. So again, workers, uh, cleaners, they don't want that to happen. So did it feel like a step up? So it's incremental and we'll come on in a second to how mm-hmm. the rest of the world looks from Italy. We're talking about how Italy looks to the rest of the world. It's incremental. As you say, it's now a genre. Did last night feel like a step change or is it just drip, drip, drip? No, it's just drip, drip, drip. Maybe this is a subjective bias in the sense that me and my family, we all stopped working. Well, I'm still working because I'm employed by the University of Cambridge, but say my family, they stopped going to work. Well, my mom is a teacher, so she stopped almost four weeks ago now, three weeks ago. My sister is also working in a library, so she stopped two weeks ago. My dad is working in a a factory and they closed the factory last week. So for us, it's a bit of a drip, drip, drip. I guess for many people who are, yeah, I guess for a good chunk of the population is uh, a big step. But yeah, it was long overdue in the sense that all the governors of the northern regions, which are the worst hit regions in the country, they have been demanding for full closure for a long time now. Some of the regions, for example, Lombardy, they passed a regional decree saying that they're going to shut down all the industries, all the plants anyways. So in a way, it was, it, yeah, it, we knew it was coming. And did they not have the power to do it unilaterally? Does this have to be done at the national level? Well, yes, apparently it has to be done at the national level. But yesterday, uh, before Conte gave his speech, which was basically at midnight, so before midnight, well, the governor of Lombardy decided unilaterally to shut down all the plants on his own, which is a bit of an, I think, a bit of an overstretch. But he decided to do it precisely out of frustration with Conte and Rome that was not taking action. It's so odd this in that we talked to you about Italian politics a lot over the last couple of years. We've talked about Conte um, in different contexts. First of all, he was the kind of accidental prime minister. Then when Salvini pulled out and he was trying to lead a new kind of government, he seemed to acquire some new status, but it still looked quite fragile. And now, like many political leaders, Boris Johnson is another, Donald Trump is another, he's thrust into a completely different situation, exercising the kinds of powers presumably he never imagined he would exercise. I know it's really hard to answer this question, especially when everyone is cut off from everyone else except online. But can you tell us what the political mood is when people watch what he had to say last night? Do people still have confidence in the government? Yes. um, I guess this is, again, something that happens regularly in moments of crisis. But The other day, a poll suggested that Conte has 71% approval rating, which is astonishing. I mean, I think it never happened in Italy's Republican history. Nobody ever had 71% of approval. So, yes, the executive is enjoying a lot of support. People think that they're doing well, and maybe we can come back to this, but I think part of the reason why 
the executive has so much support is because it feels like, compared to the rest of Europe, they have done very well. And there is this line going around which says that, you see, Italy decided without second thoughts to give precedence to human life against the economy. Now, I'm not sure that is a correct reading of how the events unfolded, but this is the story that is going around. So I think this explains much of the support that the Prime Minister is enjoying at the moment. I think um, a lot of people listening will be surprised that Italians think that their government is doing well simply because there is an alternative narrative, mm-hmm. which is Italy is showing the rest of the world what not to do. There's a particular focus on the decision, it's now a couple of weeks ago, to shut the north and then a couple of days later to realise that you have to shut the whole country. And in the interim of those two days, the disease spread very rapidly north to south. And there's a kind of broader lesson, which I think other democratic governments have taken on board, which is where you have free movement of people, so where you're not China, if you do partial shutdowns, one of the effects is that people move and they move the disease with them. I suspect, I don't know, I suspect that's part of the reason why the British government is wary of shutting down London. And so Italy is held up as an example of some of the mistakes that were made. Is that not felt inside the country? No. Uh, No, there are two things to be said here. So the first is that the mistake was made, but it's a slightly different mistake. So the reason why two weeks ago so many people decided to travel from Lombardy and from Milan to the south is not because the government shut down only the northern regions, but it's because the document, the document in which they decided the shutdown was leaked. Yeah. So basically what happened is that people living in Milan, for example, realized that the shutdown was coming and that they still had something like 10 hours before it was coming, before it came into force, to flee the city. That meant a lot of people cramming into very packed trains and trying to go south and spreading the disease into the centre and south of Italy. So the problem is not really the fact that the lockdown was limited to the north, but the fact that the news of the lockdown was leaked before the lockdown could be enforced. And in a way, what surprises me is that Macron reproduced exactly the same move without the leak. So he announced that they would shut down the country 12 hours before they did. And exactly the same scene that you could see in in Milan two weeks ago was reproduced in Paris a few days ago. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not really sure what is the mistake. And in a way, in the United States, this is being replicated on an even larger scale, partly because of the absence of federal leadership in some respects here and a country where movement, free movement of people is built into how Americans live. It's almost impossible to get this right. Mm you can't do what's happened in the countries where the disease has been brought under control because it's not just a leak scuppers it. The way we live and the way we get our information scuppers it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And also the fact that you cannot just from night to morning have the army in the streets. I mean, that's just too difficult to take in, right? Yeah. So even here, it took them... Now there is the army in the streets, especially in the big cities like Milan or Bologna and some some big cities in the north. But it took them 10 days to get themselves to the point of bringing the army in the streets, just because, again, in a democracy, it's just not acceptable that you have 
the army is stopping you and telling you when and where you can go to do your groceries. Um, At least not not without warning. If you if that happens without warning, it's called a coup. It's called a coup. Yeah, exactly. And in a way that it it was very interesting because a few days ago, so China is sending in a lot of support, including doctors. And a few days ago, there was a press conference, a joint press conference between the Chinese doctors and the sanitary authorities of Milan. And the Milan authorities, they were saying, well, yes, the shutdown is slowly starting to show effects and well done. I mean, there are still too many people jogging, but all in all, it's somehow working. And then the Chinese doctor took the microphone and said, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but this is not a shutdown. So, yes, yeah. and here you see the entire difference, right? The completely different political regimes. So we normally talk about Salvini when we talk about Italian <laughs> politics, uh, Berlusconi, Salvini, the troublemakers, or mm. if Berlusconi falls un- under that category. Where's Salvini been? Again, what we hear, we're not inside the country, most news that's not about this virus has been squeezed out, but just looking online... There seems to be a sense that Salvini has been put back in his box a bit by this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Salvini Salvini really has been, or at least it looks like Salvini has been caught completely by surprise. He made a series of false steps. So when the first cases were discovered, something happened that is actually very similar to what happened in London, I think, two weeks ago, which is that especially Milan refused to was in complete denial. So they ran an ad campaign saying Milan doesn't stop and all the authorities, Salvini included, were complaining against what they thought was an overreaction from the central government. And the narrative there was, this is the productive part of the country, we should keep it alive and working, otherwise there's no future. So Salvini started off with that. And then as soon as they realized the big mistake they they made, of course, Salvini had to backtrack. And his reaction was to pick up fights with the government at a time in which the government, well, well, most people were looking at the government as the only source of authority. So Salvini lost a lot of support. And the latest polls show that he really lost up to two, three points in two weeks, which is quite something. Now he's threatening not to sign this big decree, this big uh, yeah, decree that the government passed in order to inject a lot of cash flow into the economy. It's not clear why he's threatening not to sign it, but he's threatening not to sign it. The president of the republic had to intervene. So that's one line he's trying to play out. The other argument he's trying to use is a Eurosceptic argument. So he's basically going banging on, on the idea that you see the EU is not here. We told you the Germans are not willing to share their respiratory devices with us. We had told you all along. Yeah, because it seems that there's a slight mixed message. As I understood it, one of the reasons he doesn't want to sign the decree is he doesn't want to go down the path. We've talked to Adam Tooze about this, of possible corona bonds and the Mm -hmm. federalization of the European economy so on the one hand he's saying look we told you the country's going to be sold out to the EU bureaucrats when we get in a crisis and on the other hand he's saying look we told you when we're in a crisis the other Europeans don't care about us yeah exactly there is a mixed message and he's not really articulating it clearly so when he's threatening not to sign this decree he's not really saying I mean 
If you look at his Twitter account, he does tweet about the fact that getting corona uh, bonds or accepting money from the MES is a way of selling selling off the country. He does say that. But that's not exactly the same argument he's giving for not signing the decree. He wants ventilators but not money. Yeah, or he wants yeah, yeah. That's not a great. I, but message. it's it's not clear what he wants. I mean, he he he's of course aware that Italy will need a lot of money. And it's not clear where he's planning to get it from. Yeah, it's not going to come from Putin, I think, at this well, point. I don't know, maybe China. Maybe he's looking at China at the moment. It's yeah, not but clear. Also, the politics of that are pretty complicated. Um, pretty complicated. So, so Zingaretti, the payday mm-hmm. leader, so he's now known a little bit outside of Italy as the guy who would have been three weeks ago. I lost track of time, went out for a two, beer maybe. and told people, was it only two, told people he was still going to go out drinking and then he got the virus. Mm. Yes, yes, he did. Of course, there was a lot of irony and scepticism about the fact that, again, as you said, he was the one who went to Milan having aperitivo and then got the virus himself. But he was, so the way he announced it, the way he behaved afterwards was very sober. And I think somehow people forgave him for that because that's a mistake that everybody made, right? The mistake of thinking that this was an overreaction. And he's, himself and his party have been very quiet throughout the entire crisis. They've only been supportive of what the government was doing. And I think that people appreciated that. And that shows in the fact that, again, the latest polls show that the Democratic Party has gained two or three points in the last two or three weeks. So basically, Salvini lost these two or three points, depending on the polls. And the Partito Democratico gained them. So it's... yeah. It, the fact that he made that mistake doesn't seem to have had effects on his popularity or on the popularity of the party. One last politician, and then I want to ask you about how the rest of the world looks from Italy. Mm-hmm. Di Maio, so when we last spoke, I rashly said, five star are done. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you should never in politics make those kinds of statements because you never know where you're going to be in three months' time. Mm-hmm. Um, where are five star now in this? I mean, they're still in the government for a start. Yes, but one would be tempted to say that you were right. Oh, really? Oh. No, so I mean, I don't think they're done forever. That's when I think for- I'm wrong. You're going to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I don't think they're done forever. I don't think that's the case. But at the moment, they have disappeared completely. So the only voice you hear is Di Maio, who's the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And you only hear of him because he's organizing repatriation flights. That's all he's doing. Well, the other thing he's doing is managing the relationship with China. And of course, now everybody's looking at China as this sort of deus ex machina, giving us machines and face masks and expertise. So in a way, he is coming out of this crisis relatively well, but the party is nowhere to be seen, really. But one last thing I would like to say before we move on is that there is an interesting new dynamic. Well, it's not really a new dynamic. It's an old dynamic that has come to the forefront recently, which is the role of northern regions and the governors of these regions in Italian politics. So I think that now the real political divide is between regions and Rome. This is interesting because the regions that are gaining ground and voice are the regions in the north. So again, Lombardy, Veneto, Emilia and Piemonte. And these are the worst hit regions. And three out of four of these regions are run by governors from the Lega, from the League. 
And I think this is interesting because it means two things. So the first is that these individual figures, these governors, are much more visible and enjoy much more popular support than Salvini does. And there has always been a tension between Salvini and his nationalistic vision of the party and the governors of the northern regions, who, on the contrary, don't want a nationalist party, but want autonomy for the regions. Because these are normally wealthy regions that have a good health system, that have a good rate of compliance from the citizens, people are paying taxes, they're productive, they're wealthy, they're generally well run. So this crisis is really showing the the tension within the league between governors and Salvini. So Salvini, who doesn't know, who has no expertise of really governing anything, and these regional governors who have a lot of expertise and who are the ones holding on the show, basically, they're the ones who are saving lives, if you want some an exaggerated rhetoric, but that's the sort of rhetoric that's going around. So this is one reason why this is interesting. And the second reason is because the old tension between the North and the center, between the North and Rome, has become very important again. So again, the opposition is between these Northern governors who want to, for example, shut down the entire productive activities of the regions and Rome, who's trying to be more cautious and doesn't want to give them the powers that they want to have. And I think this tension between the North and Rome will play out again in the future once the, the emergency is over. That's really interesting. So is it, so it's North versus Centre, it's not North-South? No, it's North. It's really North against the rest of the country. Well, the rest uh, of the country is therefore the South, isn't it? Well, but also the Centre, right? Okay, in the sense, right. it's, it, it really is Veneto... Lombardy, Piemonte, Emilia. Right. So, and it's interesting, right? Because there is a Emilia, which is, as we discussed later on our last episode on Italy, Emilia is run by Bonaccini, who's from the Partito Democratico, so from the center left. But all these governors, so League plus PD, they are working together against Rome. North South divides are confusing because, as you say, they leave out the center. There's an assumption yeah. that as soon as you've left the South, you're in the North. But uh, <laughs> as in. No. As in England or the UK, that's not true. There is the middle as well. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. China, as you said, China is now deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. A month ago, China was the source of the disease. China was the place that Italy was the first country to stop flights coming in. China was the problem. Now China is the solution in some sense. Can you date it? I mean, when did it flip? When did it go from we must do everything in our power to keep the Chinese out to we need more help from them than from anyone else? I think it's two weeks ago. So until two weeks ago, you still had the governor of Veneto, who's again a league person, 
saying that we all know, literally he said, we all know that Chinese eat mice. So this still was a pretty strong racist rhetoric and a sort of Trumpian blaming blaming China for, for, for the, the outbreak of the disease. But as soon as they realized that this is a serious problem, suddenly the, the rhetoric and the narrative completely flipped. And now China is the solution. And then presumably at the point when the deaths in Italy went above the number of deaths in China and the, the, as the various graphs that are put out, but the Chinese have not just flattened the curve, but they've turned it the other way. They've bent mm -hmm. the curve. And in Italy, as we speak... It's still going up logarithmically. China looks completely different now. Yes. Yeah, of course, there is. I mean, everybody here is aware that we are not China. First, the outbreak in China was only in one region. Now, the region was as big as Italy uh, in terms of population. But here we are locking down an, an entire country. And of course, we cannot use the measures of surveillance that China has put in place. Presumably there are not um, armed officers of the state outside apartment blocks taking people's temperatures as they go in and come out. No, no, of course not, even though they are taking temperature everywhere. So when I landed uh, from London, they did take my temperature. But and yes, that, it's, And that was nearly two weeks ago. That was, yes, uh, 11, 12 days ago, yeah. But they have been taking temperature at airports since the virus broke out in China, so it, It's almost a month now, or even but, more than that. But, but when you were stopped after your walk in the woods, the police didn't take your temperature? No, no, they didn't, no. So no, of course, we're nowhere close to what was going on in China. Um, but one thing that, for example, again, the northern governors are trying to insist on is the idea of testing the entire population. It's an incredible effort, both in financial terms, but also in terms of organization, right? You need people to test every single citizen in each northern region. Again, the, the justification for that is to do what China did. So Italy is, in some respects, two weeks ahead of the UK. The sequence seems to go Italy, Spain, France, UK, possibly Germany, a little bit behind the UK, though Germany shut many of its schools before the UK did. Mm -hmm. And people in, in Britain and in other places look to Italy as a possible glimpse of our future, our future in two weeks' time, not in any longer time frame than that. Do people in Italy, as we sometimes hear, look at, say, British people? We're told by Boris Johnson on our Friday night, this is your last night for going out to the pub. So a lot of people think, right, I'm going to get some pub time in now. Do people in Italy look at that and think the you don't know what's coming down the line? Do they despair of us? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, we do. Absolutely. Do they think we're mad? No. Yes, yes. So there is a complete sense of despair and just we can't make sense of what's going on in the rest of Europe and in the UK and the Netherlands especially, right? Okay, so, so the Boris's... Netherlands is the other one, right? Not yeah. Germany. After Boris's speech, when he basically announced this herd immunity theory and when he said you're going to lose a lot of loved ones. The reaction in Italy was that that was completely, completely insane. Then, of course, then Boris made a U-turn on that. And people in Italy, again, take it as a proof that we are right. <laughs> and just to be clear, the yeah. thing that was insane, was it the herd immunity bit or was it the loved ones bits in the sense that you said what really struck me about what you said earlier was the feeling in Italy that the government is doing the right thing because it is prioritizing saving lives over everything else. And yeah. 
did it feel like Johnson was saying a little bit, well, we're going to have to just factor in a certain amount of inevitable death of old people and that there's almost a cultural dimension to this, that it sounded cold about the old in a way that in Italy that would be unforgivable. Yes, yes, I think part of it is that absolutely. So just the coldness with which he said it. And that was also uh, an accusation that was made against Merkel when she said very coldly, you know, 60 or 70% of the German population will get infected. And the coldness is what that means is death on a large scale among the elderly. And the other thing Mm. that we're constantly being told, and it's true, is that Italy is a society with as a proportion of the population, more people aged over 65, by some distance, actually, than, say, the UK or Germany. Yes, and on top of that, there is another cultural dimension, right, which is that in Italy, old people live with young people. So just an an anecdotal example, my grandparents live with my uncle and my cousin, like literally in the same house. They have different rooms, but it's the same house, which, of course, means that that old people are much more exposed to getting the virus because my cousin who's 23 and who until three weeks ago was going out on dates and clubs is a source of danger for my grandparents and that's true at a very large scale in Italy which and I don't think it's true in the UK for example. So is this partly about people living at home relative to living in care homes I don't know the answer to this question do far fewer older Italians live in care homes than do in the US and UK? Yes, apparently, yes, that's the case. That's what I've read, at least. And also, intuitively, this seems right. Because, again, Um, in the US and the UK, the initial phase of the spread of the disease is it just rips through some care homes. I mean, it's terrible when it gets inside a care home, what it does. But it feels, I think, to many people, again, it's cold to say it, but for that reason, it feels relatively isolated in those terms, Mm -hmm. too. Whereas in Italy, it's inside the family home. Yeah, exactly. So I think in, because of that, Boris's statement about old people dying appeared particularly cold. But I think people tend to associate that with the herd immunity theory, because the idea is that to have herd immunity, you somehow need to sacrifice people, right? And people in Italy read that as a proof of the fact that the British government is putting the economy before lives. So the British government would say what it is doing is putting the health service before anything because Mm. what the British government thinks you see in Italy is without, to use the cliche, flattening the curve, the health service gets overwhelmed and doctors have to make these terrible judgments and people are left to die because there isn't enough capacity. Now, we don't know in the UK, even today, there's a bubbling feeling that the health service is about to be overwhelmed anyway. So we don't know. But I'm sure Johnson would say that's their number one priority, that that you can't just talk about saving lives. What you have to do is think about the capacity of your healthcare system to save lives. And in that respect, the country that looks scariest of all is the United States, yeah. where healthcare could, in some places, be genuinely overwhelmed. So Italy... For many people, and again, I don't think many people know the details. You just get these scare stories about what it's like inside Italian hospitals. But that is the thing that I think the British government, and it may well be failing in this, but it thinks it has been trying to avoid. Yeah, but one thing that I don't understand about this, and that has been discussed in Italy as a proof of of somehow Boris's being disingenuous about this, is how 
letting the virus spread helps flattening the curve. Because in, in a way, what we did in Italy was to let the, the virus spread, right? We intervened too late. And that's why we ended up where we are. So I, I guess, yes, people tend to say that the, the old people are the ones who die. That's true. But there is an entire chunk of the population, which is basically people above 40, who get the virus and will need hospitalization, even though they will not die. And then there are all the people who need hospitalization anyway, and an overwhelmed health healthcare system doesn't just overwhelm doctors' capacity to treat this disease, it overwhelms the capacity to treat other diseases too. I think what happened in the British case was there was clearly a switch even just a few days ago. There was a thought that you would stagger social restrictions, but that the pace of this, and I think this is true everywhere, the pace of it caught them by surprise. And as often in a crisis, and I think there are parallels with financial crises too, one day you think you're in the business of managing it and then you just know all you're doing is firefighting. Yes. So do, um, this is a sort of another question that's almost impossible to answer. In, in the, we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know how long, do you have any idea in your own mind, have you set a time limit on how long you think it's going to be before you're allowed to go freely walking in the woods again? Or have you just yeah, accepted so, this is indefinite for now? Yeah, the limit that the government gave when it first imposed the restrictions was April 3rd. But they already said that, of course, that's not going to happen. So the most optimistic uh, experts tend to think that it's going to be end of April. So that's a while. Yeah. And how would you say people are relative to even a week ago, so two emotions. One is fear. Are people, it's impossible to answer this question, but are people more afraid or less afraid than, say, a week ago? Um, I think it has been a bit of a roller coaster. So people were very afraid, I think, two weeks ago, so before the lockdown came into place. And that is because it really felt that it was not under control. Then when the lockdown was imposed, there was a moment of relief, right? So, of course, the lockdown is difficult. It's difficult to endure. It's frustrating in many ways. But there was a sense in which the government took a strong decision that will have effects. The problem now is that even though they clearly slowed down the spread of the disease, it has not peaked yet, whatever that means. I still have not understood it. But... Um, it's two weeks now. Well, it's uh, a little less than two weeks nationwide. It's two weeks in Lombardy uh, since the lockdown came into force. And the numbers are still not flat, right? Mm. The, the, the number of dead people, but also the number of infected people keep on rising. And so I think this is now creating new fears, which is basically how are we going to get out of this? The lockdown is not working, which, of course, I mean, experts tend to say that it's too early and the lockdown was not enforced seriously enough, as the Chinese doctor said. But there is a sense of, uh, again, loss of faith in the, the effectiveness of the measures that is, of course, creating fear and especially fear for the future. I mean, now everybody is aware. Italy was already in a very precarious economic and financial situation and social situation, too. Many young people, my friends, my sister, my relatives, they don't have serious jobs. They are all on very precarious contracts that barely cover the bills. And of course, the question is, what's going to happen 
in three months' time now. And yeah, people are, are of course, very worried about that. So in a way, one milestone to look for, and it may be sooner rather than later, is, as you say, that the numbers both of infected and fatalities levels off and then starts to fall, which mm-hmm. it has happened in China, but under, as you said, completely different political and social conditions. Then the other question is about relaxing the restrictions. And again, it's not China. China can relax the restrictions in a very hard line way. I mean, it can hold the line on the relaxation. There is, I think, a widespread anxiety among democratic governments about getting out of this because of all the reasons it was so hard to get into it. The messaging is difficult and the forms of coercion at their disposal are limited. And this disease, just because it's flattened and then the curve starts to bend the other way, doesn't disappear at that point. So there is at least a possibility in the stories in the British papers this morning, people need to psychologically prepare themselves for 12 months, 18 months of very restricted existence. And we are, you're two weeks in, we are 48 hours in, and we're not even anywhere close to where you are. No, yes, and I think people are more and more aware of that. Um, And that will require a massive cultural and social change of frame of mind. Um, The optimistic version of this is that once they manage to keep the disease under, to, to put it under control, then new cases will arise. But they will do a lot of contact tracing, they will do a lot of testing, and by doing that, they will be able to control the spread, right? So the idea is to take the example of the first few vi- the first villages in Italy that were the hotbeds of the disease, in which basically the government imposed a complete lockdown from, say, day four or five, and now they have zero new infections. And so the idea is that if we can keep it under control, then whenever new infections spring up, then that village or that part of town will be under lockdown. So in a way, Italy becomes some kind of hybrid version of South Korea and China under that scenario, plus presumably much better equipped, actually has testing capacity in place and so on. It's it's yeah. not a far-fetched scenario, it's possible. No, yeah, I think it's the most likely. I mean, it's the most hopeful scenario, right? We all go back to normal life. And then every now and then, every here and there, somebody goes under lockdown for another couple of weeks. Weird that that's Um, what we now call normal life. Exactly. Last question. If, and I'm not saying this is either the optimistic or the pessimistic scenario, but if there's, say, a 12-month shift in how people live, brings people closer together with family, uh, people are living at home, People are having to organise their lives around primarily, in some cases, exclusively domestic social arrangements. This could have social effects too. I mean, people's the, the roles that people play in their own lives, inside their own families, could start to shift. Italy is, a, in some ways, a rather traditional society. It has some traditional roles, including gender roles. Do you think, are we starting to see any of that shift? I mean, I have no, I only have anecdotal knowledge for That's that. That's what we want. <laughs> yeah. So, We're living uh, in a world that, so most knowledge currently is anecdotal. Yeah. <laughs> so my sister, the other day, my sister is living with my parents at the moment. My sister is 27 and my parents are 60, both of them. So the, the arrangement in my family is that my mom is a teacher uh, who takes care of the house, who takes care of cooking, of the kitchen, and has basically no 
knowledge of anything that has to do with IT or computers. On the contrary, my dad is engineer and he's a nerd, so he spends all of his free time on his computer programming things. Now, since the lockdown started, my mom has to do online teaching. So my mom spends all of her day on a computer trying to talk and Skype with her students, while my dad spends all of his days cooking pizza, cleaning the kitchen, doing all sorts of things. And again, the other day, my sister sent me a picture of my mom on her computer and my dad with an apron in the kitchen. And that's just, that's just mind-blowing for me. Uh, incredible inversion of gender roles that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. It's a kind of revolution. Yeah, yeah it is a social revolution, yeah. <laughs> we are going to be keeping in regular contact with Lucia and with other people in different parts of the world who are experiencing this extraordinary pandemic in different ways. Helen Thompson will be back in our regular slot Wednesday night to talk about the impact of coronavirus on European economics and politics and our way of life. We're recording extra episodes too with Richard Evans about the comparisons between cholera epidemics in the 19th century and what we're living through in the 21st and with Tara Westover, the author of Educated, about a world where kids aren't going to school. Do please join us for all of that. We're going to be broadcasting regularly in our normal slot, but there will be plenty of extra episodes too. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. At the same time. Okay. Three, two, one, bang. <laughs> <laughs> and again the the justification for that is to do what china did yeah sorry sorry <laughs> that's why i think if we were in the same room i would have seen in your eyes that you were going to finish at that point oh sorry okay, yeah. no. <laughs> so just like a few more things uh, this is great by the way um Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.